All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with Dr. James Justin Sledge regarding the recent rise of folk horror, magic in movies, cool occult texts, approaching the esoteric as an academic, his YouTube channel, Esoterica, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, Please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Justin, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Less a troublemaker, but definitely a book reader and a fort builder. Lot, reading lots of weird books. I have distinct memories of uh, reading a book about vampires when I was in the fifth grade. And it was two books I checked out from the library. This time of the year, actually, of course, this time of the year. And then there was uh, the middle of the book. You know, the, the, often in the middle of books, there'll be like the color pictures. And in the mm-hmm. middle of the book, there was a color picture of a, of a uh, woman who had bright red hair. And she was a vampire. And I became convinced that the girl in sixth grade who had the same kind of hair was also a vampire. And I became <laughs> deathly afraid of her. And I remember this moment where she looked at me. And she smiled in this way that, you know, was probably just like the way kids look at each other, you know? And and I became convinced that she knew that I knew. Did you ever see her reflection? I never did, you know? You know, it's again, and so that day I came home and I was out out in my uh, my dad's work shed, like sharpening steaks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> getting ready for you know what what would be my uh what would be my peter cushing moment but so yeah and and fort builder yeah absolutely i remember being out in the woods just like building lean-tos and yeah my, we, we had a pretty lib you know pretty uh liberal's not the right word we had a very uh you know with southern family it was sort of like you know you you were out until the the lights came on to the street lights came on and maybe you came home in the weekend and maybe you didn't <laughs> You know, you ended up on Unsolved Mysteries or something. <laughs> but I remember, like, building lean-tos, and my dad's like, you want to go, you know, go stay in your lean-to tonight. He'd come out there and take a look at it and make sure it was, you know, up to all OSHA standards or whatever. <laughs> structurally sound and whatnot. Yeah, structurally sound <laughs> and, you know, protect you from whatever raccoons or babies that existed in the, in the woods. Mess up out there a couple of times, and, yeah, me and my brother and some friends of ours would stay out there, and it was a lot of fun. Again, it's the kind of things you can get away with in the 80s that now you're, you would definitely get, your your kids would definitely get taken away from you. I was born in 81, the, the tail end of Gen X, I suppose. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah, what am I, 42? I don't know. Okay. Nothing matters. Between 40 and 50 is a no man's land. Just trying to paint the picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's definitely the 80s. Definitely the 80s. I remember being sort of, you know, eight or nine, uh, being kind of out in the woods. And, and the woods weren't far from our house, so it wasn't hard to be out in the woods. But yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It was being that close to nature and being that, that far away from home, but also knowing that if you needed to like skedaddle because you heard something. It was a hot run to the house, but, it, you know, at least you could get back to the house. 
So off the top of your head, do you remember any, well, just like myself, I was a fort builder as well, live in the South, if you can't tell from the voice. My uh, grandfather always told me these stories about the goat man and, you know, the dog man and all these Southern legends and make you scared to stay in the woods. Did you have anything like that growing up? Yeah, we, you know, we had in Mississippi, we had uh, witch spots. There were spots in the woods where nothing would grow. That's where the witches danced. So we had the witch spots. So you didn't want to be anywhere near a witch spot on a, a full moon. What else do we have out there? Yeah, it's all kinds of legends in the big black, the big black river of piracy and all this, that, and the other. And I don't know if I really were pirates in the big black river. I doubt it. Why would they get that far up? But you know, again, when you're eight or ten, you know, you don't really you don't ask a lot of questions. You know, it's far better for you to believe in the ghost pirates and you know them not be real for you not to believe in them and they are real. And it's more fun that way. Yeah, well, it's certainly more fun. <laughs> um, way more fun. Better, 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 better tales around the fire. And, uh, but yeah, what else do we have? There was always the idea that there was always somebody in the woods, some hermit, some weirdo, witch, you know, something out there. And again, the boundary between what was civilized and what wasn't. In the same way that it was worrying to the people in New England in the 17th century, I still think it was worrying to working class people in, in the 1980s um, and the height of the satanic panic and all that stuff. And so I think that, you know, many of those deep, deep, very deep American anxieties, they survived. They lived on in the in the bone deep memories of, of people all over this country. And so I think that's the reason why horror mm. as a genre has done so well in this country is because uh, we have a bone deep memory of it. Right. And specifically, if you just want to just narrow down genres of folk horror, specifically, when you see things like The Witch, goes back to exactly what you're just talking about. Right. In the Drug Face, I think, is another great example of folk horror, Appalachian folk horror. No, for sure. I think that um, that these anxieties are very, very American anxieties, and that yes. is why we have done so well, so well in that in that genre. And that you know, the occult has always terrified us, and I think that's uh, part of the reason why we're both deeply taken to it and also very deeply repulsed by it. So you just mentioned you read books, vampire books. Did you lean towards any specific author growing up? I mean, just throwing out a name, Stephen King, something like that, or anything? Yeah, like you know, it's funny. You know, I never got into reading fiction. I, I still have a difficult time reading fiction to this day. Sometimes people find it find it difficult to believe that considering what I do uh, which depending on depending on what you believe is mostly what I read is fiction but yeah you know I never got into reading much fiction you know of course I read scary stories of telling dark and all that kind of stuff when I was a kid the obligatory scary stuff you know scary stuff which is funny because I remember the kids the generation later than me were reading goosebumps and I was like that's fake that doesn't have like the horrifying skull woman you know in the black and white drawings <laughs> I'm like, this is weak sauce, man. Like, you're not really like, you know, that stuff's not keeping you up at night with these terrifying black and white, dripping, oily pictures of Alvin Schwartz. I think it was his name. Alvin Schwartz is the guy that edited it. I can't remember the fellow's name that did all the pictures. Gamble? That might be your right. Gamble. I think it's something like that. Yeah, so I didn't get so much into into reading into reading fiction, but yeah, authors from that time period, you know, I, it all. Whoever wrote Wait Till Helen Comes, which is a child scary story book that I still have. Real Vampires, I think it was written by a dude named Cohen. Yeah, it was just, you know, there's a book at Loch Ness Monster I read. I used to love the Time Life Unexplained series, which are all sort of like Bermuda Triangle. And got, got a lot of them on the shelf over there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know, those, you know, those are like, that's not a nostalgia trip, you know go into the, the the local library and pulling off the ghost one and you know the really famous picture of the the of the the brown lady ran m hall or Vorley rectory and all these famous oh, yeah. photographs and stuff like that yeah stuff fired my imagination as a kid man I, that stuff never left me you know I, I don't know if i believe in any of that stuff anymore 
But I will say that my what I do now as an academic in the world of esotericism and the occult, what I wanted to do was put myself in the shoes of the people taking those photographs or experiencing those things and not to judge them, not to debunk them, not to, you know, to jump down their throat about what they what was real and what wasn't real. And I don't, I don't have a, a lot of interest in doing that in my academic career, but to really understand them yes. and to make sense of why that why that mattered to them made a lot of sense to me as a kid and makes a lot of sense to me now it was always like a sense of like i'm not sure if i believe in this stuff but what i do believe is that people have weird experiences and let's let's talk about those experiences in an honest and frank way and let's also talk about the literature around them in an honest and frank way that isn't either let's believe everything they say because we shouldn't do that but also let's not just throw everything out maybe with the bathwater, just because we a priori just don't believe in ghosts or fairies or you know leprechauns and demons let's uh, let's try to take it in a, a sympathetic light but a critical light and I think those two things, you can you can do those two things at the same time. You can be both sympathetic and you can be critical. Even early on, Justin, when you start to become interested in the occult, as you say now, obviously, you know, you don't believe these things now. But early on, was that interest, was that part of it? Were you trying to debunk? Not debunk is a, you know, I don't want to use that word, but were you trying to see if those things were real yourself? Yeah, I was really trying to understand, like, you know, it, you know, I was getting told one story at school about science and evolution and, and the history of the universe and the Big Bang and the four fundamental forces and chemistry and science. And that all made sense to me in a real deep way. It made sense to me. And then, you know, I looked at the other stuff like ghosts and angels and demons that also made sense to me. It's like, yeah, there must be some kind of hidden world. Like, you know, all these people can't be lying. All these people can't be making up stuff. There must be something to all this. And it became an interest of how to square that circle, how to tie those things together. And what really led me into a lot of this was, one, alchemy. I became very interested in alchemy at a very young age. I still have tracks I printed out on the, you know, the high school computer, just printing out page after page of JPEGs of old scans of alchemy book. And I was in Latin at the time, so I was trying to translate them. That's what I was working on translating. And that was the idea that, you know, my teacher, uh, my, my middle school's natural science teacher was really clear about the fact that they had not figured out everything in physics and that really fired my imagination so i thought maybe it was still possible that these the things the alchemists had discovered were ancient secrets that had been lost for reasons of bias or whatever else the other thing that i really came latched to was the the whole story around john d and edward kelly and the angels they allegedly talked to and the fact that they had re revealed in a language and again ties back to my me being in latin you know if you if you study latin you realize you can't accidentally latin you can accidentally fail latin <laughs> but you cannot accidentally latin <laughs> Latin's a highly structured language with a bunch of damn rules, and you can fill the hell out of us in Latin. And I, it became clear to me that in so far as this language, this angelic language, had rules, then you couldn't. It couldn't be accidental. It couldn't just be the Pentecostals down the street saying gibberish. That right. there are rules here, and that those rules meant something was going on. There was an intelligence there, and that really also fired my imagination. And it was never a, a desire to debunk. And I, and I don't, you know, if you folks ever watch my channel. I don't have a single debunking video. That's just not how I operate. I don't I don't believe in that way of doing education. I, I'm not there to disabuse people of beliefs. What I'm there is to present evidence and present data and present what we know, given the confines of how we know and how far we can know. And people have to come to their own decisions. And I give people at the end of every esoteric episode, there's a list of books that people can go and, and do the work of reading this stuff on their own or what have you. So it was never a desire on my part to debunk. And, and I still don't have that desire. It was a desire to understand. And if understanding means that a better theory than angels are talking to these guys or ghosts are causing your floor to rattle or there's a giant monster in a lake in Scotland, if there's a better 
analysis than that, then I'm happy to come to that analysis. I'm not assuming things about the world and then going trying to debunk a, a people's beliefs about God or angels and demons or Enochian spirits or magic or what have you. I'm saying, like, this is the evidence we have and this is the literature we have. And let's start with there and let's start with the, with the most open mind we can. And let's let the let's let the evidence lead us. And wherever the evidence leads and wherever critical thinking leads, that's where we got to go. And you may not like it. But it's, again, it's not about what we like. It's about going with the evidence. Well said. You mentioned John D. and Edward Kelly, how they sort of stoked your curiosity. That's two of the most common names that come up when you ask folks about their interest in these topics. So what do you think it is about D. and Kelly specifically that makes them so alluring across the board? Well, they wrote in English. The diaries are basically in English. So that means that you don't have to learn. To, you know, there's chunks in Latin, but you can, you know, even with some basic early modern English, you can get access to them. So that's the first thing is that they're just... In English, if it were all in Latin or Hebrew, I guarantee you people wouldn't know about it. The second is that they were incorporated pretty early on into ceremonial magic with the Golden Dawn. So that meant their prestige went way up. Also, even a couple of generations after they were dead, you have an addition, a true and faithful relation that's published. Of course, it's published to lampoon them and show that they were, in fact, you know, in league with the devil and Anabaptists, God forbid, these kinds of things. So I think that mostly it's just a selection bias. We tend to gravitate to what's most accessible to us. And the D. Kelly stuff is just frankly very accessible in the Anglophone, in the Anglophone world. And given its connection to Aleister Crowley, to, you know, Tool has a whole track with a title written in the Enochian language. And then the language part, you know, everyone's attracted to exotic languages. People make languages up, you know, Tolkien invented Elvish and things like this. So it's just, in, and also the sex stuff is kind of scandalous, right? Dean Kelly switching wives yeah. uh, at the very end of the experiences. And there's the intrigue involved with Dee as a kind of a espionage character over there on the continent. What's most surprising to me about the whole Dee Kelly stuff is not that people are interested in it. What's surprising to me most about it is that it's not a Netflix series. That's what boggles my mind. Like, it's, just not, it's, it's not already a Netflix series and that you wouldn't have everybody from Francis Bacon and Bill Shakespeare and everybody and their mother wrapped up in all of it. And you make the best uh, conspiracy theory Netflix show of the 17th century. King James, the first out there being t tormented by witches and him writing his demonography book. And the fact that that's just not a, a Netflix series that we're all talking about, that is what is surprising to and me. And it's already pre-written for you. <laughs> Basically, yeah, you have the entire script there in the diaries and stuff. What boggles my mind is not that it's popular. What's popular? What's uh, what's boggles my mind is that it's not already like just what like normie people are talking about when they're after Game of Thrones. I don't know if you're familiar with the actor Armin Shimmerman. He's a uh... Next Generation. That was my when I I think it was my uh, my last touch to Star Trek was Next Generation. Quark. I you know Quark off the top of your head? I, I do know Quark. Yep. Right in a uh, novel novel series about John D. He actually had uh, was trying to source a specific story regarding some voodoo dolls, I think, that were found. And they came to D, I guess, to uh, debunk these or see if there was some sort of mystical attack on the queen at the time. And he couldn't find a source for it. So he thought maybe he had dreamed it or something or he had read it in some fiction book and couldn't find it. But we ended up contacting the John D database and we did. The guy who runs the John D database had to run his uh, through his files that were no, not scanned onto the site. And he actually ended up finding it. So just a little D sidetrack story that we had our own little wow. <laughs> John D adventure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, when I think when the Queen Elizabeth had any sort of like weirdo questions, she needed an answer. She kicked it over to D. Yeah, <laughs> uh, she did visit him on, on a couple of equations, uh, a couple of times down there and uh, at Mortlake. So, Justin, before we go too far from your childhood, I wanted to ask you, uh, when you think about the formative films and TV shows that you grew up on, what comes to mind? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely Evil Dead. Evil Dead 2, particularly. It's a book. Of, it's a movie about scary book. It's a book about a, an evil book written in blood on the own. It summons these dark forces. It's an ancient Sumerian. You know, this was a huge part of my the my kid universe was this obsession with uh, with ancient ancient books of of ritual power. And of course, it's funny now because you know what I part of my side hustle with uh, esoterica is I deal in antiquarian rare books, and so I can reach across my table and pick up a copy of Disinquitarum Magicarum, <laughs> which is a pretty you know, pretty famous witch hunting manual here from uh, 1604. This is not the Necronomicon to be sure. It is the most important encyclopedia of, of magic and witchcraft ever produced in the early modern period. Close enough to the Necronomicon to be cool. It's close <laughs> enough. I mean, it certainly resulted in more deaths, unfortunately, than the Necronomicon, sadly. It's really something very quite grim. I'm sure I could flip to, you know, a certain page here. And, you know, the, I was just looking at this the other day and randomly opened to the, the to the chapter on, uh, oh, yeah, here's the chapter, chapter on apprehension. I'm sure right after that. I'm sure if you're if, the, if it'll pick it up, but De Tortura on torture so yeah so the evil dead series was a huge impact on me just in the sense of like ancient book and things like that i think halloween the original halloween also made a huge impression on me as like a a movie about how evil could come into suburbia life yeah. suburbia. <laughs> yeah. and i grew up in a working class neighborhood not so much a suburban neighborhood but just like the idea that evil could just be a shape. It could yeah. look like a human being, but it, it really wasn't. There's something really terrifying to me as a, as a youngster about that, that it could it could invade your neighborhood in a way that, that could do that. In a way that, to me, that was in some sense, some sense is scarier than, than Jason. Because I never went to summer camp. So I was like, I'm safe from that. Which is funny now, because I, I, I end up going to camps now to go to uh, weddings. I'm going to one this weekend. And my brother and I both went to the wedding of my sister-in-law, which was at a the same camp I'm going to this weekend, actually. And my brother and I showed up to the summer camp. We just sort of stopped when the you know the cabins are all laid out and the pontoons in the lake and all this. My brother and I were like, nah, we ain't going to this. <laughs> <laughs> I got one reference point for this. <laughs> this is bad news. My wife and you know, sister-in-law, no, it'll be a lot of fun this weekend. We can all like, you know, we can have some drinks and, you know, do drugs. And, you know, then I'm like, uh-huh, y'all all gonna die. <laughs> It's got a curse on it. Out of all the slashers, Jason is the easiest one to avoid. It's like, just don't yeah. go to camp. Don't go to camp. You're done. It's easy. Uh, but yeah, so those movies were important to me. You know, again, like, I was the kind of kid that was just every Friday night, USA Up All Night, and I was just up watching those every Friday night, staying up as late as I could to watch whatever they had to dish out. You know, I was like watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, watching, you know, Toxic Avenger, You'd sometimes get a random Dario Argento film on there, mm. and it would leave your mind blown forever. Uh, Fulgi, yeah, I remember yeah. Seeing, you know, as a kid, seeing some, uh, you know, seeing the, yeah, seeing some of his stuff, just like, you know, blown away by that. But yeah, I think the cosmic horror stuff settled in with me first in film, and then later I discovered Lovecraft and really picked up Lovecraft as a as a late teen, early twenty, uh, early twenty, early twenties person. I was gonna say it'd be a damn shame for someone who was so into terrible books early on to not fall into Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah, so eventually I did fall into Lovecraft, and I've actually written a bit about Lovecraft and done some episodes about him presented at the Necronomicon a couple of years ago. I'll, I'll probably present the, the the next this year if they'll have me again. I'm trying to think of other movies that were like really... I think also Hellraiser made a big impression upon me, this idea of like there was a kind of puzzle that one could solve and it could unleash these kind of... It could be a kind of gate to another dimension that was hellish in some way, which I really love the idea that it was that it wasn't the solving the puzzle, it was desire to have what was on the other side of the puzzle that summoned the Cenobites. Right. And I felt like that was an unfortunate thing that the new movie didn't get right, in my opinion. 
was that it was simply solving the puzzle that caused the chaos. And there's a great scene in, I think, Hellraiser 2, where um, Pinhead says that it is not hands that summon us, but desire. To me, that was the most important quote of the entire the Hellraiser's franchise, was that it wasn't just the me- mechanism of solving the puzzle. It was a kind of deeper desire. And I always loved that idea. There was sort of a malevolent desire that summoned them. And I, you know, as a reader of people like George Bataille, uh, who I'm a big, you know, I've written on and done episodes about, that's always been a fascinating element to me of transgressive desire. That's a fascinating trope, which is more interesting than Jason, right? Because in, in Jason, in, in, the, in those movies, any desire is transgressive desire. Mm. And that's to me less interesting because then it's just like, you're just Christians. <laughs> Fundamentally a Christian movie. It's a puritanical movie. Which is fine, but it's less intellectually interesting. You know, again, aside from the fact, you know, uh, of course, who doesn't want to see some person bundled <laughs> up in a in a in a in a sleeping bag and beaten to death against a tree? Like, okay, <laughs> like okay, you had me at beaten to death be, in, in a some you know in a in a in a sleeping bag beaten with a tree. We're kind of we've kind of been dancing around this, but this is what I, I like to ask this question to everyone: uh, What scared you as a kid? I was pretty scared of vampires. I mentioned the young woman I was scared of in sixth grade. Still convinced she could have been a vampire. Um, I hope she never finds me. Scared of ghosts. I thought ghosts were a very terrible idea. I still find ghosts to be a pretty frightening idea. One of the most terrifying ideas that I think that I have in my own personal belief system is that I might survive death, that there might be an afterlife. There's no more terrifying concept to me than that, that I might not actually die. The only thing worse than dying is not dying. There's something about the idea that I could wake up on the other side of this and there be anything, anything, whether it be hell or heaven or reincarnation or anything, that oblivion doesn't lie at the other side of this is a positively terrifying idea to me. And anything that survives death, that has always terrified me, whether it be zombies. I remember like my my uh, one of my good friends growing up and I, we loved to watch Night of the Living Dead and other Living Dead movies. In my backyard, we had a kind of little, like, I don't know, shed that my dad had built that was mostly for storing tools. But we would go out and pretend that it like we were surrounded by zombies and we had to like defend the shed <laughs> and we had our guns and our we had to board up the doors. And, and it was really a thing. We really kind of cosplayed living dead mythology. So what scared me, I think, was the possibility of survivor out the death. I was never scared of demons. Like demons always struck me as sort of stupid. Either you mucked it up and they came and got you because you did something stupid or ultimately they're going to lose because like, they're going to like fight against God or, or something like you can't win that. Like they, they, they're not they're playing the short game. Yeah, they're the guys playing penny slots. Like, they're they're not going to win. <laughs> so I was never terribly afraid of demons. I was never terribly afraid of monsters. They seemed very unlikely to me. I was, you know, never terribly afraid of aliens. But, yeah, survival of the, the ability to survive after death, whether it be zombies or, or revenants, ghosts. And even now, ghosts to me are somewhat of a troubling aspect, a troubling idea. Because on the one hand, we think that if we hear a, you know, bump that goes in the night, it's easy to attribute that to a ghost. Until you have to start doing all the work of figuring out what in the hell that really means. If you see a ghost, what are the photons bouncing off of? If they can open your cabinets, what, how in the hell are they interacting with your cabinets? If they're walking around on the floor, how are they interacting with gravity? Why isn't gravity sucking them down to the, you know, things get really complicated. Yeah, yeah. If, if ghosts are real then everything we know about physics has to be altered, blah, blah, blah. And so ghosts are, I think, a paradigmatic example of uh, a simple solution that breaks everything, basically. And so these kinds of things are quite worrying to me. So, yeah, even the idea of zombies. I remember as a kid, the idea of being bitten by a zombie and then being, you know, non-consensually brought back from the dead to harm the living. is always a positively terrifying idea. At least the vampires were sort of brought back with some degree of 
consciousness, right? Do you have the you know Lestat or whatever? You know, he's he's brought back, but he he can struggle morally with his terrible condition. He can eat rats or whatever, and the zombie has no ability to do that there. And, and I think of this this great Netflix show, Black Summer, that really shows it to me in the best way possible. To me, it's the best zombie genre show I've seen in I don't know, ten years or something. Where in Black Summer, you really come back as a kind of ravenous animal, and that to me was. To me, the most frightening example is of the zombie genre, especially the first season of, of Black Summer. I was like, my God, this is utterly terrifying. So, yeah, I think it was always coming back after you're dead. I'm with you on zombies, man. Zombies and werewolves for the same aspect, I believe, because they're a little bit too close to humanity. It can almost be real in your head as a kid. You know, it's like, well, that person that's just a person that's back from the dead. Well, that's a person that just happened to be under some curse. Yeah, they can harm you. Yeah, see, it's the ability not to control yourself. Yeah, you know, it's the Jekyll and Hyde thing. The, yeah, that's a fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, I maybe haven't had thought too much about vamp uh, werewolves in the same way, but yeah, the idea that you're ripped out of who you are in a way that you don't consent to. Yeah, I think werewolves are an excellent example of that. Yeah, next next uh, fall, I'm going to do a whole series on, on werewolf literature. Yeah, I've been looking at a lot of like uh, 16th century and 15th century werewolf literature, some of the really earliest stuff, and sort of uh, looking at that literature. So yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that next year. It's definitely my bag. I'm just going to say, uh, what about D&D? Oh, I love D and D. I grew up playing uh, AD and D. So I was a uh, folks who play some AD and D. You would know. You remember things like uh, armor class of zero and Thakos, you know, to hit armor class of zero. You'll remember the the you'll folks will you know will remember either through PTSD or through nostalgia, <laughs> or through Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> Uh, the good old days of having to look up tables for how to kick a door in and everything else. <laughs> you know, and it's not just a strength check, God forbid. No, no. It's real nerd dumb. You gotta look up three tables to figure out where you kick a door in. It's gonna take you fifteen minutes to do the research. It's the good old days of uh you gotta drink all that coke to be awake all night. So <laughs> Were you always the door. DM? So yeah, I was almost always DM. Yeah. So I play and even now, uh in the in the last couple last few years where I've been playing, I'm I'm typically DMing. I do wish I would could play a character but yeah my my go-to ad and world was always planescape i love uh planescape as sort of i love the the political drama i love the access to the different planes i love the the cosmopolitanness of it i love i love that but i will say as a grown man one of my favorite things is being uh having enough money now where i can go back and buy the old books that i can never afford and read the dark sun books and the ravenloft books and <laughs> even the spelljammer books which are wonderfully like hair metal absolutely hair metal 80s but no you know i'm not a i'm not a purist about uh about dnd i'm not sort of like yeah double down on thacos i love 5e i think 5e is great i love playing 5e you know i never got into playing pathfinder or anything else kind of a DD purist not because i think it's not because i know it's any better because i don't know any because I, I don't know any better i love playing DD. i think it's a i think it's a great game for uh, adults because as adults we're deprived of our imagination that's one of the things that we're robbed of uh the transition from childhood to adulthood is being robbed of your imagination it's a great crime committed against children to rob them of their imagination. Adults are often robbed of community, especially non-religious people are robbed of community. You know, the famous joke about Jesus, you know, Jesus is the greatest miracle. It's being 30 and having 12 close friends. <laughs> so we're robbed of, we're robbed of community uh, and we're robbed of storytelling. We you know that there's either you're telling facts and there's debate about facts or you're telling like made up stuff. And the fact that we don't sit around a fire and we don't tell stories, we don't spin yarn. We don't talk about the big fish we caught. And everyone knows you didn't catch that damn fish. <laughs> but we all entertain your story and we talk about, you know, that we don't have a storytelling culture 
we don't have a community and we don't have the role of imagination, those three components, right? In addition to that, a game based on cooperation, not competition, where you succeed because you cooperate, because you think critically and don't believe stuff. A game in which you like, it's not about just like sniping people at a distance. It's about like getting into the muck of it and figuring it out with your friends. Those are all values that, my God, if we could just learn a sliver of those values in our society, we'd be living in such a better society. I will say it is kind of cool to see D&D make the full circle into being very nerdy to now it's almost mainstream. I think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, am not, I, I am not one of these guys who's, oh, it used to be cool, hipsters, you know, the hipster mentality. I'm like, no, my God, if, if I could get 20 million people learning the values of this game, I'm about it because I think it will make for a better world. And again, the, and even more first local than that, the idea that in the 80s, you know, we had to kind of hide our D&D stuff because, you know, we were all devil worshippers and all this, that, and the other. And, and the truth of the matter is D&D is an actual predictor for pro-social beneficent behavior. Now, same with metalheads. Metalheads are far more likely to give to charity. They're far more likely to be like pro-social. They're far more likely actually to like to be like open and, 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 and tolerant of other worldviews. And you would look at a metalhead and you might think, oh, wow, they're kind of gruff and scary looking or whatever. But it, again, like these stereotypes are so harmful, and they've been perpetuated by by people who have don't have our interest in mind. And by our, I mean just common people. You know, metalhead culture, metal culture, D and D culture, nerd culture. We're all demonized at some level in the 1980s, and have all shown to be incredibly sort, incredibly important sources of very beneficial traits and virtues that I think society in general could 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 benefit from. You know, you just mentioned you know having to hide D and D and such. With your interests early on, you know, I grew up in the South as well. Certainly I had books I had to hide from my grandmother. Did you have to uh, sort of hide things from your parents growing up when you started collecting these books? I think my parents were pretty forgiving. I think the one, the funny, it was never like the weird books I brought home. It was always uh, the logic books. And one time I got into an argument with my dad and uh, started quoting Aristotle's logic. Kind of winning the argument, frankly, and uh, and that was the end of that. Uh, this damn, you know, it's just one thing to have a book about how to transmute lead into gold, or you know, a book about demonology or something. Something to best your dad in an argument because you quote Aristotle. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Aristotle had to go. And uh, my dad has since expressed real regret about that, and so I want to make sure to honor honor him and you know him and him saying that was a mistake he made. But yeah, I think that my parents are pretty forgiving. Mom's kind of a hippie, and she was kind of into you know whatever. And but yeah, I was able to read whatever I wanted to read. And I read a lot of stuff. I certainly didn't understand Aristotle being a good example. I hardly understand the hell he's talking. I still don't understand Aristotle <laughs> talking about half the time. Yeah, I don't think I had to hide a lot. I think I had to I had to be judicious around you know what you flashed at school or. You didn't want to bring your D&D books to school. That just wasn't like a good look. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it wasn't, I don't think I had to hide much, but it was about like, you know, you got to keep it to yourself a little bit. I gotcha. Now, would you consider yourself a metalhead growing up as well? No, no, I would not. I don't know what music I listened to when I was a kid. I got into like industrial music in the 90s. I was really into like Skinny Puppy and Throbbing Gristle and like Nine Inch Nails and stuff in the 90s. I, I really liked industrial, but it wasn't until graduate school like well into my 30s that I got into into metal. And even now, it's still like a very specific genre of metal. I listen to a lot of like standard sort of hipstery, black metal, a uh, little folk metal. Although I will say that in the gym recently, I have really like rediscovered Metallica, which again, like I didn't listen to Metallica as a kid, so I didn't really know. The more thrashy early Metallica I've gotten into a little bit 
like I've gotten into. It's like, oh yeah, this is really like musical genius. You're talking like kill them all, ride the lightning type yep. stuff. Mm. Yep. So that kind of stuff. And again, it's really cool for me because I, I didn't listen to that when I was a, a youngster. And so now that I'm listening to it for, for the first time, you can see like it's genius. You know, I could, I can appreciate the first it. Time, you can really appreciate it. You're like, oh wow, like this is like, I listened to the Black Sabbath, the actual, the, the album Black Sabbath. I remember I listened to it for the first time all the way through well after I was into metal. I was, you know, listening to a lot of black metal and stuff. And you can listen to that album and hear basically every genre of metal in, in the in, 70s. In the 70s. Yeah. You can hear like, <laughs> oh yeah, there's some black metal there and there's some like folk metal there and, and there's some death metal there and you can hear like in like in embryo the entire genre emerging and you're like these are a bunch of cool working class kids from birmingham man they're just like working class genius musicians and god bless them like they pioneered this this amazing genre of which so much is commentary so i will say i'm a late bloomer to really discovering metal and i on the one hand that's kind of embarrassing or whatever but on the other hand i really come to it with a a beginner mind because I, I haven't heard it before, but also I get to come to it knowing like, oh, this album's really important. Let me appreciate what's really important about it. And I can, I kind of can hear it for the first time. And for me, that's really amazing. I mean, the, uh, the records that you love, imagine being able to hear them again for the first time. And I get to have that experience. I feel very, feel bla- very blessed, feel very blessed to be able to do that. You know, as you're progressing, you're growing up, Justin, was it always your goal as you're getting closer to college to pursue religious studies? Was that a, a waypoint you always had your sights on? I mean, I had no idea I was even going to go to college. <laughs> I had no idea. My dad was a pipe fitter, and uh, I worked with my dad as a pipe fitter in the South. You know, a lot of kids do their dad's job. That's the way, yeah. we, the way it goes. So, yeah, my dad always said, you know, son, use your, use your mind, not your body, because your body's going to give out, but your mind can keep going. And again, like real working class wisdom. He's like, I want you to get out of this. Like, you don't need to be in these attics. And it was terrible working summers in attics in Mississippi, laying down black pipe for, for sprinklers is what my, what my dad did. And he had to carry that pipe by hand because those buildings didn't have elevators in them yet. So my dad really broke his body, you know, to, to raise us. And I worked with him and I saw in my own self how hard it was. But it was funny. I never thought I would go to college. I was, you know, it was a random, totally random that I ended up in college. It just so happened that I was reading in a, a in a cafe, uh, getting coffee before I had to go to work. That a college professor saw me, and I had been checking out books from the library since I was a kid. And eventually, I checked out some damn book from Hegel, Lectures on the Philosophy of History, or something. I think it was. The professor was like, yeah, "I seen you in here reading this like daily." He's like, "Why? Why? Why are you reading that? Yeah, I'm wearing Dickies or whatever. Yeah, I'm, it doesn't look right." And I was like, "Yeah, it's the guy that wrote the book on history. I guess you know you can uh, come to college. And you can we can study this stuff with other people." You can get paid to do it. You can you can get you a scholarship. I was like, well, I don't know if I believe that, but I'll I'll come I'll come see what you're talking about. And he took me over to to the college, local college, and I was like, well, y'all give me money, I'll keep coming. They kept giving me money, so I kept coming, and eventually ended up uh, you know on the other side of the podium. In some ways, it's sort of a, a funny story that I never intended to be a you know an academic. I'm, I'm a work I'm a working class kid. I come from a working class family, and it just so happened that you know a, a very important moment in your life can lead to. A, a big change and very much thank that that happened and also it, it means for me in a big way to give back and that's why i love running my youtube channel where i can make everything accessible everything free you know and i don't ask for anything as like you know I'm, as long as people can support some people can support me that's fine but otherwise i'm never going to make anything behind a paywall or uh, make exclusive content or anything like that i'm like no i was poor i remember being poor i remember wanting to learn about this stuff and 
and eventually I ended up at the only degree granting institution in the world that offers an advanced degree in this material. You do the Lord's work. I mean, uh, he probably doesn't think so, but you know, <laughs> he might. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the Lord. <laughs> yeah, right. Good one. <laughs> I've already had several several people today just message me and say how much they love your channel and they're looking forward to the episode and one of the best channels on youtube it's just great man this is i was looking for what you do i was looking for something like that when i was in college myself it's great no it's the advice i always got told one of the pieces of advice i was told early on is make the make the content for the you that was looking for it yeah, and that's what I try to. That's what I try to do. You know, make it engaging, make it funny, make it as deep as you can. You know, make it serious and rigorous, and also give people the courage and the ability to empower themselves to learn it on their own. Because you'll never find a better teacher than you. In your videos and on your website, you've gone into detail about how places are limited to study esotericism. You know, in a academic capacity. Do you see that? Do you see that going forward or backward? I think it's going forward. There now you can get an MA in magic at University of South Carolina. There's a new pro new there's a new program in Exeter. So it is getting better. You know, we need more PhD programs that are offering the terminal degrees so that people can really get out there and teach this material. We also need academic institutions to get their head out of their ass and realize that people are really interested in this material and to hire people, frankly, like me <laughs> and other people to like teach this because people want to learn about it. So I think there's a combination of things that need to happen, but I do think that I, I do think the Titanic is turning. I'm hopeful, but also, you know, I'm going to keep on keeping on doing what I'm doing and providing the educational services that I can provide because those, are all, those will always be free and it's not going to require you to go into tens of thousands of debt for college. And so well, I'm going to continue building what I'm building and, and doing what I'm doing and fostering the community of education that I can foster. Also, I'm really enthusiastic when institutions are doing the same and I'd love to work with them to make that all happen. I feel like we can all we can all knit together a quilt where people have maximal access to educational opportunities and I feel like we're all we're all better for that when we can achieve that. Well said. Just uh, referencing the book you showed us a few minutes ago, what is the coolest thing to come across your desk? Coolest thing to come across my desk. Yes, maybe in fact maybe it's actually right behind my my monitor. Let me grab it real fast. It's also a book. And there are a couple of things that are interesting, but this is the most neat interesting thing recently. So this is a fifth little tiny little 1549 edition of a collection of mostly Greek pagan occult wisdom. So this is Iamblichus is on the Egyptian mysteries, Porphyry's on spirits and demons, uh, the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus. Michael Celsus on demons. So it's sort of a grab bag of like, if you were living in the 16th century and you wanted to become a, a magus, this would be kind of the book that you would want. And this is a neat book just on its own. And so like, well worth having if you want it. And this is the first edition from 1549. But what's really neat about this one is not just what it's about, but also who owned it and also who signed it. So I don't know if you can make out that. I can't see it too well. Signature there. But that says Harry Houdini. Holy shit. That is pretty damn cool. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it says H. Houdini. So this was owned by, uh, this was in the Houdini collection. It's signed by Houdini there on the, the frontispiece. Again, it's maybe mirrored because of the recording. But this is actually, uh, was owned by Houdini and, and signed by him. And the this page here says, uh, uh, from the Harry Houdini collection, and it was noted in 1923. So this is a neat volume. Yeah, it's a this is a really neat. It's a it's a book about magic from a magician by, <laughs> signed by one of the greatest you know the magician. <laughs> yeah, the, the, you know one of the greatest magicians. And it's funny for me to have it in Detroit here, 
where, uh, of course, Houdini died. And so it's a neat book to, to have in the collection. I don't know what I'm going to do with it ultimately, but it is neat to like... Was that sent to you? So no, I, I, I got it at auction. Um, okay, gotcha. I, I, wanted, I wanted it at auction. So it's a, it's a, it's, that's a rare volume. Uh, the 1549 really comes to market and you know, signed by Houdini. You know, it makes it one of a kind. So I think it's a pretty neat little text to have. You've already said, Justin, you, know, you don't like to debunk, but I do want to ask you, you know, when it comes to occult themes and films, are there ones that come to mind that express those themes very well? Yeah, I think there are. I think there's some, there are some films that do occult stuff well. The Devil Rides Out, uh, it's a great film that, uh, that, that deals with some occult stuff. Dennis Wheatley. Yeah, Dennis Wheatley, yeah. yep. So that film, I think, displays... Wheatley, you know, Wheatley knew Alistair Crowley. He, he was really acquainted with the occult world at that time. He, he himself was not an occultist. He was an anti-occultist. But he was the kind of guy who took his opponents very seriously and he depicted them very accurately. So I would say The Devil Rides Out captures some degree of kind of occulty stuff of that time period. The Witch, I think, captures the, the kind of manic fever of 17th century Puritanism. So if you... It's not an accurate depiction of witchcraft, but it is an accurate depiction of what Puritans thought witchcraft was. So in that way, it captures their imagination very well. There are very few films that depict alchemy very well. I think Pi does depict Kabbalah in a weird way, kind of well. Pi by Darren Aronofsky. It's a great experimental film of, I guess, the early 90s. The Devils depict sort of like, I think, very well the kind of craziness that was going on with the Ludon possessions in the 17th centuries. That's also a really great. I film. haven't seen the movie. I'm familiar with the possessions themselves, but I have not seen that movie. It's a fantastic film. It's one of the like really important like X-rated movies that really got banned everywhere. It is cr- really crazy, but uh, it's absolutely one of the best films, horror film wise. And the performances by everybody, including the nuns, uh, what's the name of the play? Is Grandier. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic film. A dark song. I think also a dark song is also a film that I think captures the occult vibe very well. It doesn't accurately depict the ritual very well the abramelin but it captures something of the vibe mm. in a way that like you know again part of art is not to teach us i think we if we're looking for art to teach us I, maybe we're not looking for the right thing but sometimes art can communicate to us a deeper kind of truth a deeper kind of like sense of what's going on and i think that's okay i, I don't i don't go to film looking for documentaries if i want to watch a, right. watch a documentary i'll watch a documentary if i want to watch an, an episode of esoterica well i'll make it i don't expect film to do that work I feel like people who expect film to do that work are really looking for film to do the wrong thing, or art to do the wrong thing. Art is about communicating emotion and feeling and making an impression upon us. So I think those films do it quite well. I'll say a film that recently I've watched several times now that I think captures evil in a way that I've never seen captured, in a way that struck me as a very deeply pre-modern, pre-Christian way of conceiving evil, is um, I think it's called The Dark and the Wicked or the wicked and the evil or something like that but it takes place on a texas farm and i've never seen a depiction of evil as like rigorously evil as that where nothing can save you there is nothing coming it's done and what was the name of it like the dark and the wicked i think let me see are the wicked and the evil it has such a generic name that it's like hard to remember but it's a uh fairly recent movie yeah it's a fairly recent movie i'm gonna watch that yeah the dark and the wicked i've never seen it like i said it's 2020 I've never seen a movie that that captures evil in the way that pre-modern people thought of evil as like predatory, that it was just playing with you, that it it couldn't be defeated. There was no stopping it, that it was just like mucking about with you and it was just going to destroy you. 
and it was going to throw you on its own terms in its own time and there's nothing you could do and I, I like it also you could go back our to our talk about folk horror is because they're just texas farm people there's no reason why they should be targeted there's no reason why it should happen to them and it just doesn't stop and i find that that sense of evil like we're so used to the the exorcist sense of evil where yeah there's evil and it can make a little girl do terrible things and it can really like do terrible things but ultimately if we get the right priest in there we can stop it and this does not give you that is it a period piece no it takes place in i guess 2020 gotcha okay yeah it's a very like dude in his truck kind of movie again as a again as both being southerners to me it's just captures it depicts southern people very well which is not a thing that happens often in film (laughs) we're all either like redneck racists or matthew mcconaughey um (laughs) and i I think that that's well uh i think another film also that our show rather that i think depicts the occult in a philosophical sense and dealing with evil and stuff like that is the first season of true detective Mm, yeah, uh, the first the first season of True Detective is one of the most philosophically rich pieces of storytelling I've seen in, in many years. Uh, I teach it. Really? Um, yeah, I teach it. Uh, when I teach pessimism, I use it as, as a as a textbook example of of understanding philosophical pessimism. I think it's so well done. Have you read any uh, Thomas Ligotti? Of course. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of Ligotti in that True Detective. Yeah, season. yeah. So much so that it probably was plagiarized. <laughs> uh, yeah, the conspiracy against the human race is very likely not just there, but probably plagiarized. <laughs> Um, yep. So yeah, Ligotti, uh, I also teach Ligotti in that sense, but yeah, teach, uh, uh, I've taught a class on pessimism and, uh, you gotta have Ligotti in there then. Of course. Yeah. Well, <laughs> against human race, Sioran, like, you know, the Schopenhauer, yeah. Classic. You can imagine it was a real cheery class. Um, obviously Justin, you know, with esoterica, you're dealing with these extremely dense and complex topics or texts. You've been studying these things, you know, years beyond just the prep for a certain video, but how much time on average would you say goes into a deep dive on a on just any particular video in general? Yeah, it, you know, it depends on how well I know the base material. So, you know, Gnosticism stuff, I feel like I know that stuff pretty well. I can usually pump an episode like that out over the course of a week. It all depends. It's, it's a huge range. Some stuff takes me, you know, months to prepare. Some stuff takes me just a few hours. It all depends on how well I know the material. But yeah, my work schedule is pretty standard. I, I I lit review on Sundays. I write on Mondays. I shoot on Tuesdays. I edit on Wednesdays, and I'm it's to the birds on on uh, on Wednesdays. Now again, the arc of that could be there's a lot of studying that goes on in the background. But I'm I'm in uh, the good thing about never getting a job in this stuff is that I never I've been reading about it for for decades, and I have a pretty big backlog of uh, the things in my head that I can I can pump out an episode. Most of it goes pretty fast. I have to be careful. There are definitely cases where I thought I knew kind of the general overview of the literature of a certain topic and then crack the books and I'm like, oh, wow, there's a whole new 300 page book about this that's actually revolutionized the field. <laughs> I have not read it. And so uh, that can be pretty stressful. But also the good thing about being on YouTube is it doesn't, you know, it means that I can I can kick the can down the road. I can be like, OK, not this week. I'll read the book and do it two weeks from now. Yeah. You know, it, it ranges everywhere from it. Sometimes it takes me five hours to get an episode out so it probably takes me a hundred hours to get an episode out you know it's it all depends but yeah it's also because i work inside my own wheelhouse it's I'm, I'm not killing myself i'm not trying to dump a ton of time into a topic i'm usually not rather i should say i'm not ever building a topic out of scratch so uh i saw the your answer to this on your uh, frequently asked questions on your bio but i'll let you expand if you want to have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal no no i've never had nothing definitive you know when i was a kid i thought i saw weird stuff and and certainly i've you know 
had my experiences on psychedelic drugs and things like that. But um, I've never had an experience where I walk away to my, to this day thinking, yeah, I can't explain that with anything else than saying it's paranormal or, or uh, supernatural. And that's not to say that uh, it's not to say that I don't want to. I, I would like to because I think that's a big a big part of the human experience. Most I, I realize that I'm weird in that way that most people have, and you know, most people have seen things they, that they take to be ghosts or or what you know like a whole range of supernatural things. I just haven't. I'd like to. I mean, if you own a haunted house or whatever, and you want to come sleep in your house, I'll, 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 I'll you know I'll, I'll binge a Netflix series in your house and wait around for the ghost to show up or whatever. But yeah, I've never, I've never had a, I've never had a situation where I've experienced something I think was supernatural, whether it was a miracle or a ghost or or what have you. You know, academically speaking, you say these topics like we've been talking about are sort of like pushed to the side and not taken as seriously. Or does the flip side occur to you as well to? Since you're not a practitioner, do you get backlash from the other side to where, you know, how how can you expand upon these things when you don't believe them or you haven't at least tried it? Yeah, yeah, I do get that sometimes where people are like, you're just an armchair occultist. I'm like, I'm not an occultist at all. I, I got news for you, man. You're knocking out of the open door. I'm not even an occultist. <laughs> I would have to be an occultist to be an armchair one. Yeah, some people are like, how can you judge whether it's true or not uh, because you never tried it? And I'm like, I've never judged whether it's true or not. You don't see that on my FAQ. You never see that episode of Esoterica. I never get in the business of telling people what they experience because I don't have the ability to do that. I don't want to do that. So I don't. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't do that kind of stuff. I just don't. I'm not a debunker. Right. I don't tell people. I don't tell people they haven't experienced things because that's that. Frankly, is crazy. So yeah, I have gotten people say things like, "Oh, how do you know it's wrong when you've never tried it?" And I'm like, "I don't know it's wrong. I'm saying I haven't had those experiences, and I can't because I haven't had them. I can't deduce the same things that you can. You may be justified in your beliefs. You may be justified to believe the things you believe about spirits or demons or what have you. I'm not. And so, and then sometimes I get people saying things like, you know, "How dare you reveal all all of our secrets to all the people?" And I'm like, "I don't, I don't know about you, man, but." Uh, I, I I get this book at the library, bro. Like, <laughs> yeah. it ain't too secret. <laughs> Man, if you think this is secret, I got bad news for you. <laughs> so, yeah, some people, I get some stuff like that. But the overwhelming response I've gotten from practitioners is they're just really happy to have someone who doesn't have a dog in the fight, who's just willing to take the material literally, like, seriously, and just present it seriously and empower practitioners and non-practitioners to sort out what they want to do with it. And that's my only, that's my bag. I have zero interest in convincing anyone that anyone that any of this is real, because I don't know that it is. I doubt that it is, frankly. But also, I'm also not interested in disabusing people of their beliefs, of their experiences, because frankly, I can't do that. And right. people that pretend that they can are, I don't know, it's like, it's evangelical stuff. That's not what I want to do. I'm here to present evidence. I'm here to empower people to search out for a better evidence. And I'm here not to bolster experiences, nor to tell people that their experiences are wrong or fake. Or yeah, I don't have any interest in doing that. I'm hearing saying this is evidence. Like again, let's see where it goes. Maybe it goes in a direction you like, and maybe it goes in a direction you don't like. But and again, I'm very lucky to have uh, practitioner friends and colleagues who are happy to support my work and happy to chat with me and work with me on projects. And I'm happy to call them in when academics have failed to do their du their due diligence to study stuff. Right. And see occultists who've done the due diligence to study stuff. And I'm like, and it's not because I don't want to work with occultists, but I'm like, you academics have failed. You've looked down your nose at these people and they have done better work than you. So you think you're the repositories in your ivory tower of all this information. God, you know, it's not true. Yeah, I'm not picky. Good scholarship, 
it's good scholarship. I don't care if it comes from a practitioner or it comes from an academic. I just want to present the best evidence and the best data and the best like representation of this material I can to empower people to learn it for themselves. Well said, and it's damn near impossible to quote-unquote debunk a term or a, an idea like magic when it's almost personalized to each individual, you know? Yeah, I just don't. No, I think if someone's, if it, it, you know, I would be happy to be involved in a project where people are being exploited or harmed using these material. I'm happy to, to be involved in stopping that. I don't want anyone to be harmed or animals to be harmed or people to be manipulated emotionally or psychologically or spiritually. But I think you see that far more in mainstream religion than you do in the occult. And again, that's a thing that I would want to hammer home you're far more likely to be manipulated and abused in big institutions that have a lot of money and power to cover over their evils than you are a coven of queer women in the forest. Let's be real about the situation, you know? Like, who's really doing the harm here? Who's really doing, like, the institutional damage? Let's be really honest. It ain't a bunch of Wiccans. I would love to run into a bunch of Wiccans in the forest. Yeah, you know, hey, uh, at least you get a dance party in. Right. Get some steps. Out of all the academic and research projects you've worked on uh, regarding the esoteric, which would you consider the most challenging? You know, is there one that you lost more sleep over than the others? Yeah, it was, it was a paper I wrote, a long-form paper I wrote in Amsterdam that really tried to hammer down what I think happened in the John D. Edward Kelly sessions because if you look at those sessions on the paper like literally on the on the the archival data they're really weird and they're weird for a lot of reasons not just the wife swapping but there's a lot of strange shenanigans that go down in those in that text and those texts and those experiences and i really wanted to give an account from my point of view that explained them given all the intricacies involved in what happened and i felt like there were two theories there was one theory that said kelly was a charlatan and he tricked d and that seemed wrong to me. It seemed wrong to me. Uh, and the other story was angels talk to Dee and Kelly. And that also seemed wrong to me. And when I studied it all, I was able to build out a theory that I thought explained what happened without having to explain Kelly as just a fraud, but also couldn't accept this was all from angels. And so that was a tough project because it was parsing out a lot of factors. Everything from mental health stuff on Kelly's part to 16th century epistemology and all kinds of stuff. That was a tough paper. It was a tough paper. It kept me up. It took me months to write. I'd like to read that. <laughs> yeah, I can send it to you. I, I'm, I'm still quite proud of it, and I would still stand behind most of it. But it was a tough paper because, I, again, like part of my career is threading that needle of we cannot outright reject things. And also, we can't simply believe the most simple explanation, which is, you know, angels and demons or whatever, we have to wrestle with the possibilities is actually very complicated. For me, I'm, I'm, I'm really comfortable sitting with, with answers that are quite, well, quite complicated. And that leaves open the possibility. They were talking to angels, maybe. I, I'm fine with that. I don't think that's true, but I'm also, I don't have the legs to stand on to say that's impossible or something. Well, Justin, just to put a bow on everything here, can you tell us what's on the horizon for you? Tell folks just a little bit about what you got coming up for Esoterica and where they can find you. Yeah, so you can find me just on Esoterica at YouTube uh, or my website, just justinsledge.com. I don't have any other social media because it scares the hell out of me. Sometimes I look I look up and I look over at Twitter and I look over there at like Instagram and I'm like, nope, back to the foxhole. <laughs> I'll let that burn over there and... <laughs> 
looks like a gas attack over there. I'm not going <laughs> over there. No, what's going on? I'm, uh, I'm taking a break right now. As you can imagine, uh, no, uh, October, September, October is like the mad dash to get a lot of content out, really build the channel up. So right now I'm kind of in a break, like I'm recuperating a little bit to get a little gas back in me. I'm going to be releasing my my fall, uh, my last uh, rare book collection. I deal in antiquarian occult books, so it's really a really a chance to own, you know, sort of an, a 17th century, 16th century book of magic or something. It's it's you know they're not cheap. I'm not <laughs> going to pretend they're cheap, but they are. You know they are out there, and if you you know it's a fun thing to be able to collect them and make them available to people. So I'm going to be releasing that catalog. I think maybe at the end of this week, maybe the beginning of next week. And then as a Terica content, I got some new John D stuff coming out. I'm going to be looking particularly at his Heptarchia Mystica. I'm going to finish, or not finish, I'm going to continue my series on the Inquisition. Really looking very closely at the Inquisition. The Inquisition has a lot of misconceptions about it. People often think it was just like a book burning and people burning institution. That's not quite true. Looking at some other medieval manuals of magic that I have like in the in the hopper. Let me see what else I have coming up. I'm going to be covering an episode about uh, Isabella Cortesi. Uh, one of the only, like, one of the top, really one of the five female alchemists that we know of from uh, from the the Middle Ages. So she's an interesting character, just because you know we don't learn we don't learn about women alchemists. If you right. imagine an alchemist, it's almost always some dude sitting in front of a crucible. But there were, were women out. There were women alchemists. They're not well represented in the literature. Surprise, surprise. But I'll be doing an episode on Isabel Cortesi, and we as part of a series on, on really working through talking about women alchemists. I think I'm doing an episode on Gianna Bruno's book on magic. So you know. Sometimes people ask me, "Are you are you gonna exhaust the, the esoterica?" No, no, no idea. No, not, not not a snowflake's chance in hell. There's so much to do. It's endless. Uh, yeah, it's so much, so much to do, and and it's such a joy for me to be able to do it. And I'm really thankful and blessed that I have an audience that is interested and engaging and and wants to. You know, learn from this material, um, and again, not learn from me. Learn from this material. And I'm glad to be able to facilitate that learning. So to me, that's really a, an honor and a blessing to be able to, to help folks. We appreciate you, man. Seriously. Uh, outs- interview aside and all that, I'm a big fan of the channel. You know, been watching for a long time. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Justin. Once I get this edited and stuff, I'll shoot you a link. You have a great rest of your night. You too, man. I appreciate you. Thank you for, for making time for me. And uh, always reach out if you want to chat again. Yeah, we'll, we'll do. And uh, send, me that, uh, send me that paper. I will. Yep, I'll, I'll shoot that over to you. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Justin. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>
This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.